Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. When a young adult ends up being arrested, taken into police custody and put in a police cell, it's an opportunity. That's what my guest on this episode believes. Chief Inspector Jack Rowlands is an interesting and modern day copper from the Metropolitan Police Force here in London. He founded Divert, an intervention programme that uses the time a person spends in police custody to create a teachable moment, an opportunity for them to turn their life around. Divert is funded by the Mayor's Office for the Police and Crime Violence Reduction Unit. It deploys custody intervention coaches to speak with vulnerable young adults whilst in custody with the ultimate aim of changing their direction so that they don't re-offend. As well as taking the time to talk to the detainee about their needs, the team create a development plan to identify goals such as education, training and employment. In my view, it's a sensible approach for early intervention. But does it work? Here to discuss Divert, his career as a police officer and why he cares about giving people a second chance is Chief Inspector Jack Rowlands. Jack, you've been a police officer for a very long time. Why did you decide to become a police officer? What drove you into that field of profession? It was it was a real early thing for me. I think bar the children pictures of when you're a kid and you're in the boxes and you've made police cars out of them and you've got your hat on and stuff like that. One thing my, my parents used to sort of say to me when I was a young boy was, Jack, you always seem to know what the what the right and wrong thing to do was. And it used to be that even as a family, if we weren't perhaps behaving or, or we, we weren't sort of doing the right thing, you would be the one to sort of step in and say, hang on a minute, this is, we, yeah, everyone needs to sort of 
stop what they're doing or we can't go down there and or we can't do this because and and not not that I was some sort of stickler but they always said you seem to have some sort of moral compass and I think that when I was sort of um sort of at school like secondary school I leaned towards sort of doing roles like peer educators and peer support mentors and things like that and and I think that quite early on I, I sort of wanted people to be safe and people to be happy and I, I think that I realized that helping and supporting people was something I, I, I was good at you know I, I came from a decent background but everyone has challenges in their family and their friends and and, and and their social circles and things like that and it seemed that when when people were in crisis or there was someone that, that you know someone something happened that was that was bad someone I, I hopefully you know, was trying to help resolve that for them. I would be the one that would try and beeline to help solve the problem for them. And I think that's probably to a certain extent where I struggle now is I always want to solve problems for people. You know, I want to make it better for them. And, you know, certain things happened when I was growing up, you know, within the family home, within within sort of, you know, the family, the, 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 the sort of social circles. Uh, a friend of mine got stabbed in, in the neck and, and almost lost his life. And I was particularly aggrieved at that because he's such a good guy and he was so close to to, to losing his life. He he lost his brother sort of two years before just, just because of, um, you know, he lost him to a brain hemorrhage. And he, he was actually stabbed in the same place that he actually collapsed in. And I think that when when I was sort of growing up, I, I as a 14, 15-year-old, that sort of threw up a lot of sort of like, yin and yang you know right and wrong and um i just felt at that point that's when i started realizing that when i saw blue lights going past when i saw police officers when i saw sort of those sort of figures in my community and 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 around my life you know i started realizing that's that's something that i'd be taking natural interest in it wasn't a defining moment it wasn't something where i went i definitely want to do that career I just felt there was a, an attachment almost to, to policing. Do, do you have a history of policing in your family? Was your dad or granddad or anybody involved? Um, no, it, it's quite funny, really, because I think my dad would have absolutely wanted to have been a police officer. I think that's probably what he sort of talks to me about now. And he and my grandfather used to socialise a lot with police officers in the 70s and 80s in Croydon. And I think my dad was naturally sort of invested into into that culture as it were but I don't know I just it came very early on for me and it, it was it was many years you know when when I was at college I was studying earth sciences and geology and geography because I had a natural interest in that but I sort of in the back of my head thought I really want to join the police and, and well, I was going to say, in what year did you decide this is it? I'm going to. I mean, did you come out of college and and enrol almost immediately? Um, and what was it that kind of made you think right now I'm going to do? Because you could have, like you said, you're a caring guy, so it could have been social services, it could have been working for the probation service or another profession where you could deploy that kind of attitude where you wanted and could help people. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. I I think what it was for me, I think it was that mixture of immediately helping going back to my earlier point I think it was about as a police officer you are there at the critical moment where something can go right or wrong you know and 
I sort of left college and, and to be honest, I, I should have applied myself more at school and college. But I think just the way I am, I seem to sort of have my own way of doing things, if you see what I mean. And and um so I decided to join the police, but as an eighteen year old, eighteen and a half year old, you know, I, I sort of applied for Sussex, I applied for the Surrey and I didn't quite get the entrance exams. I wasn't quite and I was the maths wasn't strong for me at the time. And um I was a bit low, to be honest, because I thought, hang on a minute, maybe I'm not good enough to do it. Um, and uh, my father-in-law, who um, who I knew at the time, he he said to me, why don't you think about the Met? You know, you're, you're, you're born in London. You've got good connections with London. You know, he was a he, he worked as a, a as a firefighter for 30 years in London. And having known him for so long, I always knew the experiences he was having and, and, and the things he was doing. And that's when I decided that I was going to go full pelt and, and join the Met. But there were some challenges along the way. I, I It took over two years to actually physically join. Um, I, I was overweight, so I had to lose two stone. You know, I had to get down to like 14 stone one. And I can remember going to the doctors one morning and uh, the nurse was saying, right, so this is it, Jack. You know, you've got to, this is the time you've got to hit the weight now, you know, to, to hit the, the, the recruitment. They sort of picked up on what I was doing and I said to them I said can I just strip down to my pants just so that I'm absolutely as light as I can be you know and uh, I hit it straight 14 stone one straight away and um, I thought that was it I thought that's it I'm I'm in and then I got a um, a letter through saying that they they'd reviewed my medical history and that they'd noticed I I've got cataracts I've got cataracts I was born with cataracts as a child and they said, um, that's sort of something we can't support. Therefore, we can't actually allow you to, to join the police. So what we're going to do is send you to a specialist in Harley Street. And that specialist is is going to sort of confirm our, our initial findings, as it were. And I was like, oh, hang on a minute. This is this is bad. So went over to Harley Street. Consultant looked to my eyes and he said, yeah, I can see you've got cataracts in, in, your, in your retinas there. Um, and yeah, I'm afraid I'm going to have to recommend you to not join the police and um, support what what the Met's saying. And I can remember, so I was about, I think I was about 19 at this time, 20. I was sat there, and I just went bright red. I just, I felt myself go really red. And the consultant sort of looked at me, and he says, "Are you all right?" And I said, he said, "Look, I just want to say that I've I've lived with my cataracts all my life up till now." And I know that it's something that doesn't hit the objective rules of being a police officer, but it doesn't stop me from from doing what I want to do in terms of wanting to make a difference in society. And that's what I kept saying in my police interview, funny enough, why do you want to join the police, make a difference, make a difference? And they said, well, how about crime? I went, oh, yeah, and that, sorry, yeah, and that as well. Uh, but um, So I said to him, I said, look, I know you've got to do your job, but I want you to know that even though it's a physical impairment, it doesn't stop me from from doing my job. It won't stop me from doing my job because I, I, I can do it. And I said, please, please, can you just bear that in mind? And I didn't hear anything back for, for months, probably three or four months. And I was working insurance at the time and um, got a call from a guy who wanted to make an insurance claim. Golf clubs have been stolen from his car. Yeah, no problems. Started sort of 
tapping out his claim, asked him what his occupation was. And he said, I'm a police officer. I said, oh, oh I'm, I'm hoping to join the police. I'm waiting to join the police. And he says, oh, I'm in the Met. And I said, oh, that's the force I'd like to join. And what's it like? And, you know, we just started talking about that randomly. And he said, well, the thing is, Jack, I'm actually the chief inspector of recruitment for the Met Police. And, you know, when you go, no, 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 this is this is a wind up. You know, you're thinking, what are the odds? You know, what are the real odds of this? And I sort of just said, you know, this is where I am with it. And he says, I'm probably going to get knocked back. But it's something I really want to do. It's the only job I want to do. And he never said anything. He just was like, well, I'm just wishing you all the very best. And um, about two weeks later, I got a call saying you've got a start date for Hendon. Now, I, I, I never knew what, what had happened there. And when I went back for my final medical, because I had to get weighed again and stuff like that, he was waiting for me outside the room. And he just said, it just, it's just so nice to see you face to face. He says, all I want to do is wish you all the very best in, in your service and just go out there and make that difference. Don't waste it. And uh, that was very significant for me where I just thought that for me is, is something I've got to bear in mind because I've been given a chance here. Something's happened. So, you know, either, either they've read the report or whatever, but something's happened here where I've been given a chance. And, yeah, got my start date, started at Hendon, which was a bit like university for me because I'd never been to university. Hendon is the kind of police training centre where yeah. everyone goes to go through the ropes, I suppose. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. And it was residential. It was the first time I'd sort of moved, stayed out of home for that long time and met some fantastic people, still friends with a lot of them now, uh, really awesome tutors, you know, people that um, – Lou McCarran, who who I'm still friends with now, she was my tutor at Hendon, you know, and uh, she really helped shape my sort of vision of, of of being a police officer and sort of really sort of sharpened me up. I was I was 20 years old. I was probably still a bit wet behind the ears. Probably still needed to mature a little bit, to be honest. But when I got posted to Croydon, that's when I realised I'd made the right decision. Because what this then, so this is when you first put on that crisp new police uniform and you walk through the doors of Croydon police station what year was this this was 2003 so so I so I joined Hendon in two, June 2003 and and started at Croydon in October 2003 and um yeah it it was an immediate realization that I'd made the right choice and um the the thing for me though was the exposure that you get so early on in your services. You know, I always make the point that we're always geared around helping young people, you know, up to the age of 25, being mindful of giving opportunities to young people and supporting them, et cetera. And you're realising now, it's only now I realise it, that at 20 years old, I was a young person and I was classed as a young person in society. And yet you're now the one arresting perpetrators for domestic violence, giving CPR to young people themselves that have been stabbed, going to shootings, going to people that killed themselves, going to road traffic accidents. You're now the person that the public see as the remedy and the person that needs to fix this, if you see what I mean. And as a youngster, your whole mind is just geared on adrenaline and, and, and response and action it's only when you get a bit older you realise, blimey, mate, you you were really 
exposed to a lot there and it made it makes you think i i can remember i can remember going to my first fatal shooting my first fatal stabbing the, the first fatal shooting was was really impacted because they've never brought the guy to justice even now even now yeah 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 and 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 the sort of the background of it was basically there was a guy in this club in Croydon that was the target and the guy that went into the nightclub shot the guy nine times in the head. And I can remember seeing the chap on the dance floor as the perpetrator ran out, he then shot the doorman. And um, I can remember seeing this, this poor chap lying dead in the road and, you know, going the, the, the ambulance service had tried to do what they could for him already and we went upstairs to secure the scene up there and this this chap had been been executed really that was the sort of moment where i realized that things have got to change you know think why are we exposing society to this all the time why are people in this nightclub now traumatized for the rest of their lives if you see what i mean and it was a common thing that i started talking to colleagues i, I worked with some brilliant people at croydon and um we were talking a lot about what what we need to do to, to solve this, not necessarily as police officers, but as society, you know, violence, uh, domestic violence, you know, street violence. And it was playing on my mind a lot, a heck of a lot, actually, because going back to my earlier points around wanting to fix it, that's how I felt about it, as in I wanted to fix it and I couldn't. So so what, what could I do? Where do you get the headspace when you're seeing traumatic incidents like this. And as a police officer, you've got to be, I suppose, as professional as you can, dealing with the crime itself, trying to catch the perpetrators, gathering all the evidence and all that police officers do during the investigation of a crime like what you've just described. For, for those that were in that nightclub that were traumatised by that, um, you know, they've got to live with that. How do police officers live with that? I mean, I, I suspect that that you get some kind of therapy if you need it, it's open and available to you? Or are you trained to such an extent that when you witness things like that, you have to, I don't know, for a better word, put it in the back pocket and move on to the next crime? Because crime happens every minute of every day, I suspect, all over the place. And Croydon, being in the heart of London, does does have its its problems. Yeah, I've sort of come to the conclusion now that it's an accumulation that builds up within police officers over a period of years and period of time there were times when I was going back home well I was at home you know in the pub with my mates or or having a chat with them and I'd relay to them what I'd been doing in the week and there was one particular week where I think I dealt with probably five or six really traumatic incidents and I relayed it to them about what I'd just done in the week and they were all looking at me sort of completely speechless as to say are you all right and at that time I said yeah I'm fine it's just a job it's just what the job is you know you go in deal with it go again the next day and what was what was telling for me and sorry if I'm going to deviate what was telling for me was I can remember going to a post-mortem where a 16 year old lad had been taken off his moped and died in a car accident and the poor chap was in the mortuary and I didn't feel affected by it whatsoever. I almost felt like a bit 
not indifferent. That's the wrong word. I didn't feel triggered by it. If I'm going to be honest with you, is, is that because you'd you'd seen and witnessed death prior to this young boy being on on the post mortem table? I think so. I think so. And I can remember a the traffic officer who dealt with the who dealt who also dealt with it. He turned up to identify him, and he was probably the age I am now, probably a bit older, and he was crying his eyes out. And I couldn't understand that. I thought, how can a police officer who's got so much experience be crying about this when I've got so little experience and I feel fine about it? The secret, the actual thing was, was that I wasn't fine about it. Deep down, I've realised over the years, it's only when you have children, it's when you have a bit more life experience, it's when you're exposed to a little bit more, you actually realise life is precious and... I've since had the same experience where I've I've teared up, I've started crying after the similar incident. I realise now it's because you go through the ringer as a as, as a as a police officer where you're just sat you're just absorbing trauma all the time. And it's only until you get older do you start processing it and realising actually we this isn't necessarily normal per se. So talking to people, reaching out to therapists blue light champions that we've got in the net now we get we're starting to get there around identifying that accumulation of trauma and that yes sometimes there will be an immediate incident that will traumatize people 100 percent. but that build-up i think is what we're trying to identify more now because personally i feel now that if i was to expose myself to the level of trauma i was exposing myself to in my early 20s I don't think I'd deal with it as well. Do, do you have a choice? I mean, I, before we get to the rank that you are now, obviously, as a junior officer, you come in at a particular position in your career and then you go through the, the, the motions until, you know, you successfully get promoted, etc. But do you have a choice now about whether you are called to the scene of a murder or something? No, I mean, to a certain extent, that's, that's the privilege of serving London is you are the you are that agent you are that person that goes to that scene to deal with it and if it was in, in front of me and I I would obviously deal with it because that's what's inside you as a police officer what we can't control is what what you're what you're exposed to and how much you're exposed to it so i think that it's now about supervisors sergeants inspectors who are now more alive to this where they're starting to realize well actually jack as the 22 year old if you take you know blimey he's dealt with xxxx this week right maybe we need to have a sit down and chat with him see if he's all right if we can attack you know give him some extra support here and perhaps when i was sort of younger too that's just the job mate and you just got to get on with it because to a certain extent they're right but to a southern to another extent We've also got to look after ourselves as 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 first responders and 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 public servants. And so so for me, with all of that going on in my head, I was I was on the train to a night duty at Croydon one day. Two guys got on the train. One was Darkus Howe, who was the late broadcaster. I don't know if you, you, you remember. Yeah, that. yeah, the activist. That's right. And the other chap uh, was a man called George Hoskin, who's the CEO of a charity called the Wave Trust. And that charity is all set up to tackle the root causes of violence and maltreatment. And they do a lot of work around 
policy and lobbying around the early years, sector zero to three. And they started talking and um, I, my ears pricked up because I started talking about what the Met need to do more around early intervention. And, you know, when you you know, when you listen into a conversation and by the way, police officers, we listen into all conversations. We're, we're, we're all we're always watching. We're always listening in terms of when we're on the duty. Oh, all the time. It's a nightmare. If I go to the pub, I have to sit with my back to a to a wall. I have to see the, the doors. I'm always observing people. I'm always listening. It's just it's just I think it goes back to that fascination, perhaps in society, perhaps. I'm not sure. But so I proper earwig this conversation. And I was blown away by what they were saying, you know, around early, early intervention, you know, how the Met needs to be more aware of it. And I just got up and I walked over and I introduced myself and I said, look, I'm really sorry to interrupt, but I wouldn't be doing my job if I if I wasn't interrupting. But I'm really interested in what you're saying. And it's something that I'm thinking about a lot at the moment. And George and Darkus were both really kind and uh I walked up the sort of slope of East Croydon to to where George was based in in Wave, which was right next door to Croydon Nick. And you know when you have a conversation with someone and you go, "Oh my God, right, everything's everything clicks." You know when you go and he basically showed me this this evidence around how the brain develops at such an early age, why empathy is so important, why people why that stable family dynamic is so important and how the brain reacts to that and why things like diversion is so important in a public health approach, why attachment theory is so important. And he handed me this, this report called Violence and What to Do About It, 2005 report. And going back to what I was saying earlier, I wasn't very academic at school, but this was the first I mean, OK, uh, I admit, I, I read the executive summary, but I, I, I read the executive summary of the report and I was blown away by it. I couldn't. But I just was like, this is unbelievable. As in giving people opportunity is linked to preventing violence, you know, giving people stat, a job, giving them giving them something to aspire to do. will make sure that from a social factor, they're moving away from those triggers and then. As, as a perpetrator, having those sort of those drives around trauma, dealing with trauma, dealing with that, that historic abuse that they may have suffered is all part of, of why people can sometimes become violent later in life. Is, and, why is that kind of information? You talk about, you know, how you came across this kind of information, but is, is that not the kind of information that is disseminated in 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 Hendon, for example, where police officers are being trained, you know, the causes of crime are just important as enforcement of being a police officer. I think going back to when I was at Hendon and when when my predecessors were at Hendon, absolutely not. Maybe I'm not sure what the training setup is now, but what I do know is there's there's a far greater emphasis around uh, adverse childhood experiences. Um, trauma-informed training that is starting to come into the conversation now within within the police and you rightly point out that if I have that half hour chat that I had with George and that is an hour presentation to new officers and you say actually these are the social factors for why people could become violent the these are the the drivers that perhaps 
and make per, you know create perpetrators these are sort of like the more sort of primal reasons why people perhaps will trigger towards violence and a combination of both means that you know we've got someone here that we need to look at supporting from the very earliest age so that they don't find themselves becoming a victim of perpetrator violence if you see what I mean and and I think I think that's probably one of my aspirations in 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 the job in the future is to try and change that that culture and you know the first time I'd read about a violence reduction unit um George was working with John Carnegie who alongside Karen Kluski set up the violence reduction unit in Glasgow in 2005 and this was about the time that I met George and basically with that information I started preaching about it started to oh, I've met this person on the train and I, I, I started to become a charity member of the wave trust and I, I had become I'd become a trustee um, and and uh, I had been a trustee of the, the charity as well up until a couple of years ago and I sort of part that part of that knowledge because I didn't know what to do with it and as a PC I felt I don't know if I can influence it right it was only a few years later that I'd become a safe enabled sergeant in Brixton, where I felt I had an opportunity to do something locally. So so, just, just tell me while you're on your your rank. Just tell me your career rank then. So when you went into Croydon Police Station that very first time, you were a police constable, and then over the years, is promotion the right word, or is it just after a couple of years you just take on different ranks? Just talk me through your your progress as a police officer to to, to where we are now. Sure. Yeah, no problem. So when when I first joined the police as a police constable, I became what they call a so officer, sexual offences investigation techniques officer, which is all about responding to victims that have been victims of sexual assault. So I, I sort of started specialising in that area because I start I, again going back to my earlier points. I felt that I wanted to be there for victims at that critical time. Um, I got my blues and twos course, my response driving course. So I was flying around Croydon, which was which was great fun, really good fun. Is this where you put your blue line and go woo 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 through the traffic? Yeah, oh yeah, really, really great, really really. Have, good have you ever cheated? Have you ever needed to get home early for tea and put your blue light on? I'm always wondering. No, if... no, no, never. The no, absolutely, absolutely not. The uh, it's a remarkable the level of training you have to do to do that sort of course and the, the amount of le- the amount of you learn every day as a driver you know just having those sort of road craft you know uh, so did all of that and there's a, there is a time where you when you're in a convoy of four or five cars going to an emergency there's there's a real pride and buzz about that because you know as a as a as a group you are going towards something that society would ne- would not necessarily run to, if you see what I mean, you know. And yeah, so what the options were was: do I go down the more investigative route, or do I look at promotion? And um, I was working with a sergeant called Steve Christian, who was my first sergeant, and a governor called Phil Mockett, who are both brilliant people. I still see them now, and they both said to me, "You should think about doing your sergeant's exam." And I was still the boy of the team, really. I was still 24, 25. And um, I was a bit sort of like, not put out. I was a bit like, really? Are you sure? You know, and they're like, no, you should do it. You should do it because it's going to develop you. It's going to be something that you're going to you, you're going to get a lot out of. So I studied for the exam, sergeant's exam. And then you have to then do an application and an interview. And I passed that. And uh, I got 
posted to to Brixton. It was quite funny because I'm thinking, oh, you know, um, where do I want to go? And people are going, go, go to Brixton. If you go to Brixton as a sergeant, you can go to anywhere else in London as a sergeant. And I was a bit like, really? Well, so posted to Brixton. Yeah, it, it was definitely an experience. To be honest with you, I realised that actually when I became a safer neighbour sergeant, to do a custody sergeant, response team sergeant, supervisor, when I came to being a safer neighbour sergeant in Brixton, Ferndale Ward between Clapham and, and Brixton itself, I was like, this is an opportunity now to do something. And I, I realised that there's a pub in Bedford Road called The Falcon, and my great-grandmother used to own that pub and used to live on Ferndale Road, the road that I was, one of the roads I was responsible for in my ward. And I was like, right, I've got to almost represent my grandparents, my great-grandparents <laughs> here, you know. But going back to that sort of feelings around what I picked up from Wave Trust and George, I thought I want to do something around diversion here. And Stockwell Park Estate was on my ward, and we had a lot of young people getting caught up in gangs and a lot of getting caught up, caught up in a lot here. And I thought, right, let's see what I can do to help. So, yeah, I started off, and whoever will listen to this, who knows me, knows that this is a bit of an in-joke with, with my career, was we had London Beekeepers Association based on the estate. And I had a community centre manager who was great, who want to do something with with beekeeping so i thought why don't we get young people trained up to be beekeepers and they can help learn they can help learn their craft on the estate and keep bee beehives and everything like that and it was it was bloody wacky if i'm going to be honest with you <laughs> it didn't work is that what you're saying so yeah so they said yeah we'll train people up and we got loads of kids that are on our radar to turn up to this training course and I think half of them, half of them were stoned, if not all of them were stoned when they turned up the day. And the second day, I think four or five turned up and they were like, we don't even know why we're here. We're sort of still what's going on type of thing. And and, and it, fa- it failed miserably. But what I realised was we had a community centre, we had young people and we had young people at risk who we had a rapport with as the police. So I decided to set up jobs fairs in the community centre. So open up to the community, get loads of partners like DWP, Uvenus that are based in Brooks, get loads of partners based there and then invite invite everyone, but make sure we get the people that we really need there to be there. So, so the, the sort of like peripheral gang members, the people that wanted to sort of nudge out of the way. And I sort of built up a bit of a reputation me and my team built a bit of a reputation where they sort of said one one guy who was on in a gang once told me to stop harassing him with opportunities <laughs> you know and i i sort of realized that well maybe that's what i should do maybe that's what i should do and um by sort of in the nicest possible way harassing young people with opportunities we got a lot of young people to these jobs fairs and a lot of them got jobs and one particular kid he would throw me the gun signs on the estate, you know, riding around, he absolutely well and truly throw me the gun signs. And I can remember him turning up to the jobs fair and he got a job as a landscaper. And basically when he was leaving, he just shook my hand and, and gave me the thumbs up and said, thank you. And 
that for me was when I knew that this sort of thing was going to work. But I was still lost in the format. You know, I sort of learned a few lessons with the jobs fair because it started to take over. It started to become too big. And I was just like, this isn't sustainable, you know, from from a policing perspective, because I still got to keep the wider ward safe, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I wonder how I wonder how you manage that conflict, because, you know, your your priority is preventing crime, you know, arresting those who commit crime, protecting those who become victims of crime. That That's kind of one hat you've got on. And then you're sort of turning your other cheek, taking your hat off and trying to help people. Um, how, how do you and how do police officers kind of manage that? I say conflict. It's not really a conflict, but I mean the, the two sides of policing, because it's not your job and responsibility, I suspect, to be working in community centres. I mean, it's good to go in and tell people why, crime is bad and using your experience to try and steer people away but being actively involved in projects that is diverting kids helping people get jobs that's not what people expect police officers to be doing that's right and yet when you go back to the Pelian principle of the prevention and detection of crime i very much lean on that pillar of 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 the Pelian principles because i feel that actually yes it's not my job to get them a job it's not my job to work with them one-to-one and be a youth worker but perhaps it's my job to be alive to the opportunities for them and alive to what they call in the police tactical options so one of my tactical options might be to arrest you or to stop you or to safeguard you or to protect you but maybe one of my tactical options is to divert you because all five of those have got an alignment to the prevention and detection of crime, if that makes sense. So for me, I was actually very much alive to, well, why not make this part of of us, of what we do? Yes, working collaboratively. So as you say, quite rightly, not making it the sole purpose of our job. But whilst I was trying to help divert gang members away from crime, I was very much hunting down burglars on my ward, you know, because burglary was an issue. And I was very alive to that. I was still trying to deal with Clapham High Street on a Friday and Saturday night, as as well as Brixton Road on the other side of my ward that also had the same sort of Friday, Saturday night economy. And it, it was that balance. And, and, and the thing is, is that I don't expect as police officers to be the one size fits all for society, even though it's what I, I sort of gravitate to. That collaboration with other partners, other people, other communities is what's important. And I think that's where police can fit in. They can complement it, you know, rather than being the the driver. I think it's the acknowledgement that we can be part of a solution around the society issues, but not being the lead in it, if that makes sense, you know. Um, yeah, no, that's, yeah. that's really interesting. Let, let's talk about Divert, because you're the founder of Divert. Tell me, what is Divert and, and how did it come about? So Divert came about in a rather sort of, unique way to to the point where I after saving Abrams in Brixton I became an acting inspector within within the partnership area of of Lambeth and um, this is this is another promotion is it from sergeant to inspector I was sort of pushing myself up to another opportunity and I was given an opportunity to do it and um, I was literally just having a brew in police custody in Brixton custody with with my mates just catching up with them and I realized why are we inviting so many people outside to a jobs fair and some of them not turning up when actually they're here right now in police custody 
and in the nicest possible way, they're not going anywhere. They're a captive audience. So why don't we bring what we were bringing to the jobs fair into custody? So I'm not saying bring 50 partners into a police custody suite, but why don't we have that moment, that opportunity where we're dealing with young adults? And I want to do I wanted to work with young adults, 18 to 25 year olds, because there was that gap in statutory sort of response, as it were. And I was working with people at Brixton and working with working with Anne-Marie, who, who still works on the programme. And I said, just go down and start talking to these young adults. Just start talking to them about what their aspirations are. These are the options we've got. These are the community connections we've got, referral pathways. Let's see if we can nudge them to, to sort of make a choice and use custody as a bit of a teachable moment, use that moment of why are you here? You know, what's brought you here? What's going on in your life? What do you aspire to be? You know, it's little things like I got my best mate because he's a graphic designer to, 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 to create a divert logo. The divert logo you see is created by my best mate because I couldn't work anything up on clip art because it, <laughs> it was rubbish. And I knew within the first three weeks we were onto something. And I think the challenge was was to con- to convince my colleagues that we were onto something. Convince was was that a difficult task? Because I suppose I don't know. The, the impression you get sometimes is that you know you're and you talked about it at the very beginning of this interview where uh, you know the traumas that you've witnessed, how you become sensitised, and the things you've witnessed. That no doubt the and I was as a young man anti-authority. So coming into connection with the police, the last thing you do or want to do is communicate with them. So there must have been a you know. So that's that's from the, the, the sort of perpetrator offenders or potential criminals side, but also the police officers don't always want to engage because the last thing they need or want after they've made an arrest is to try and say, help somebody. What, what am I saying here? Some, you know, the impression is that, that once you're in custody, the police officer, that's their job. You know, you're going to be charged. You're going to be put through the criminal justice process. End of. Well, that, that's exactly it. The, the, the culture is detention and process. And it's it's something that's been going on for the tens and tens, if not a hundred years now. The custody sergeant very much used to be the king of the custody suite or the queen of the custody suite. This is my custody suite. These are my rules. This is what you'll do. I'm not having anyone telling me how to look after my prisoners, if that makes sense. So for me, I go back to relationships. I felt I had relationships with those custody officers. And I think they knew what I was, they knew from, from my beehive escapades. And, you know, I was operationally sound around public order. I worked closely with them during the Olympics demonstrations, real, real sort of, we'd served together. And I think they always knew that what I was about. So when I said to them, look, how would you feel about someone coming down and talking to young people? They would be like, well, you can, but it's not going to work. And we admire you for your try, for trying, but it's not going to work. But we knew very quickly it was and we could show that it was. We we were getting young people into employment in four weeks and we were feeding those results back to that custody team. Tell me how it works then. So a young person does something outside, they get arrested, they're taken into a police station. Tell me what happens from there. So once they're in the police station, what it happens now is one of our custody intervention coaches. So we've now got divert across 12 custody suites in London the custody intervention company will go and approach that young person and say to them, look, hi, I'm such and such. I work on the divert program. 
I'm here to talk to you about changing the direction of your life. Would you like to spend some time with me talking about what your aspirations are and what, what, and, what and, and who is this custody coach? Is this um, a police officer or, or, or one of your external partners? That's correct. So we work with Bounce Back, New Era Foundation, Mill Community Trust, Palace for Life, all loads of football foundations, West Ham, QPR, and they will have that train vetted personnel non-police personnel in the custody suite working alongside my my colleagues and so they will do that they then know that it i mean at first young people are going how did you get in here how did you know i was here you know it's like no no this the is trust. the police are tra- exactly this is what the police are trying to do and it's when young people sort of start going oh right i get it they they then and word gets out that actually you know they're to be trusted that when young people then start saying things like I want to become an underwater welder it's like well I can't weld and I can't swim it's like well okay well let's let's work on building you up to construction and stuff like that and listen to people's aspirations around coding music construction retail business enterprise it's all that sort of thing that comes out but also the social factors you know gang members that will say to us I'm gay and that's the first time I've ever told anyone that I'm gay but if I say to anyone I'm gay to anyone in my out on the street I'm a dead man I'm literally a dead man there's no there's no like shunning I'm dead and it's that those stories about childhood trauma my mum used to lock me on to the radiator and she would decide when I ate and when I slept do you see what I mean? It's it's a collection of all these stories, all this angst, trauma, maltreatment, neglect and abuse that goes on from day one in their lives. So your custody coaches, intervention coaches would go into the cell and they'd elicit this kind of information from, from the prisoner and then they would share it or, 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 or bring in the right partner to help somebody do underwater welding or something or try and partner them with someone right. yeah but 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 the individual that's been arrested and is in the police station let's say for burglary who's had a traumatic they're still processed they're not like let off correct yeah so one thing i was really keen on to doing with divert was position it in parallel to the criminal justice system so you still have to take responsibility for what you've done However, we we can work alongside you so that when that conclusion is met, you have still got a plan to, to, to move away from that. But at the same time, remember, we arrest people on suspicion of offences. So there's there's quite a lot of the time people be arrested and released without charge. I'm still very keen to help those people. And historically, the criminal justice system wouldn't necessarily do that because you haven't met a criminal justice threshold. You, you, you've been released with no further action. Let's work with them now whilst they're here so that in a nice possible way, they don't ever come back here. We don't see them again because we're taking that sort of preventative approach. And then going back that 360, going back to what we were talking about around our own sort of families. And these are future parents or their parents now, either recently or about to be. Why don't we do something with them now so that no one's a perfect parent? But why don't we give them an opportunity where criminality, violence isn't so much of a factor in bringing that child up? Actually, regular income, career development, mentoring, support is. And that's where when people say to me, Jack, I thought you were all about the early years and stuff like that. I said, I am. 
what I'm doing is I'm trying to almost take a preconception approach to the to, to what we're doing because we're dealing with young adults that are in that position where they're either going to go that way or that way. So let's try and influence them now to go in the more positive direction. So when your intervention coach goes into the police cell, talks to the individual in that cell, and that person is, let's say, released, is there work? I mean, there's obviously work still to be done when they are released. But but is that where it becomes trickier because they go back into the community, back into the environment where maybe they're caught up in a group of gangs or, or something, you know, or their criminality or their home life? I mean, what can you do and how do you try and maintain the, the momentum that you, you've started in that police cell? Yes, yeah, absolutely spot on. And that is a critical part of the programme is, and I think this is why perhaps a policing influence has helped divert, is because police officers get the job done, they're proactive. You know, they don't let something lie. If a job needs to do, we'll, we'll do it. And I think that perhaps, and this is no disrespect to any partners, I, I sometimes feel sometimes young people can be let down so that sometimes young people can spill their guts about their experiences and what they want to do. And then six, seven, eight, nine months later, weeks later, they don't get any contact. They're forgotten about. And yes, I get it. Pressures, everything. But I felt that actually if a young person confides in us about what's gone on in their lives and what their aspirations are, we need to be as proactive as we can be. So literally the afternoon they leave custody, we're putting them in front of, you know, a construction hub or we're connecting them. We've got an appointment to meet their mentor or to, to, to we've enrolled them on a pre-employment course. And the coach going back to my earlier points around harassing with opportunities is, are you there on Monday? Do you know how to log into that pre-employment course? Do you know where you're going? You know you've got this interview. This is a good opportunity for you. What can I do to help you? Yeah, don't don't dish you what I mean. It's that sort of proactivity that then helps to shift and influence that person's direction. Now, what can happen is that young person goes back to their peer group and starts talking about a construction course. We then get five of their peers wanting to be enrolled on the same course. And you start going, wow, well, actually, that's a peer group policing themselves. and that's where we should do it. Now, don't get me wrong. We've got young people on our books that still want to make that change, but still get sucked into that lifestyle. So we've got to we've got to persist. If they still want help, if they still confide in us about I still want help, we will give it. But if they make the decision, they make the choice to not pick up the phone, to not meet the coach again. It's their it's their choice, and, we, and there's nothing you can do about. That. I mean, they have to be willing and able and themselves proactive in in taking the the opportunity that that you started to give them correct and it goes back to again goes back to that earlier uh, comment you made about the jobs fairs to a certain extent it's not completely our job to do that there has to be a part of responsibility on on that on that person's part families parents really important as well to try and reignite that relationship with parents but also get the parents on board to help realize that their son or daughter is getting sucked into negative lifestyle but this is this is what the coach is doing to try and nudge them in the right direction if that makes sense it does i think it's a brilliant idea i think you know when you have as you said the captive audience somebody in a police cell it may be their first offense 
And the idea of diverting that individual away from a life of criminality or at least giving them an opportunity to to share their lived experience so that you can help prevent them getting caught up in. I think it's a brilliant idea and it makes me wonder why it's not been done before. How successful? I mean, we've talked about, you know, people willing and able and they buy into what you're offering them. They take those opportunities. They share it with their friends. It can make a huge difference. Have, Have you been able to measure the success across the 12 custody suites? What we've done, because we're moving into 12 custody suites now, so so since April we've been working towards that, we've been in the six custody suites for the last two or three years, for three years, and we, we've worked with over 1,200 young people in that time. And we aim to get about half into employment education training. So everyone will get information, advice and guidance. Everyone will get that 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 nudge and will continue to get that nudge for, for however they mean it and need it, whether it's a mentor, etc. But tangible outcome around achieving an employment opportunity. Yeah, we, we aim for about half to get EET, employment education training. What we're waiting on. So the College of Policing did an evaluation of 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 some of the divert sites. They, they use divert at Brixton because that was the more established site they evaluated that and it may well be I'm just waiting confirmation but it's looking like we may have a 20% reduction in re-arrest rates compared to a control group through the people that came through divert which yes don't get me wrong I know we make an impact but that's really important that evidence base is really important because that evidence base is one pillar of, of a public health approach as well which is where like the VRU come in to help with support that but the main thing is it's changing police culture. You know, the commissioner is a massive advocate of divert, which we're all really grateful of. The mayor is a massive advocate of divert as well. Also the home offices as well. And having those it makes parts- sense. It makes so much sense. You know, you've got a young person caught up in in, in a crime or, or done something that they may, you know, for whatever reason, it just makes sense that if you can get them at that early stage in a police cell and say, look, what, what's the issue here? What's the problem? Here's an opportunity. You're still going to be processed for what you did if you did something. But look, here's an opportunity. And it seems to me a no a no brainer. You, you mentioned VRU. That's the Violence Reduction Unit, a, 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 a program that the mayor of London has set up to try and reduce the issue of violence across London. What's your involvement in that, Jack? So I, I'm really proud to work at the London Violence Reduction Unit. So so I'm now a chief inspector in the Met and I work sort of at the Violence Reduction Unit and I sort of bridge that gap between the Met and the VRU in terms of I'm that sort of link in between the two big organisations. The VRU set up in, in, in 2018 in London follows the model from from Glasgow, from John Carnegie and, and Cam McCluskey and their great team up there. And the complexity with London, obviously, we've got 32 London boroughs. We've got an eight, eight nine million population. Um, so it will take time. But the VRU mission is to really invest in, in long-term prevention aligned to a public health approach. So things like, as you said, diversion, education programmes, in schools and pros, parenting programs, we've got mentoring programs, we've got we've got the My Ends program that VRU has just funded, which enabling communities to take ownership in a small local area where there's a violence problem and enabling them to really take ownership and help sort of influence young people in their communities to to take that proactive approach to reducing violence. And 
some critics will go, well, the VRU's been set up for three years. Why hasn't it achieved a massive reduction of violence yet? The whole point of this is that it takes time. But with the investment and the sustainable efforts from everyone, that's where we start turning that massive ship as a societal issue of violence. You know, domestic violence is another main issue that, that we want to tackle. But going back into the zero to threes, you know, helping mums, dads, children at that very earliest stage is really important as well. And for me, I will always be a massive advocate of the violence reduction unit because I believe in the public health approach and programs like Divert that are now funded by the VRU. That is that is a good model for how policing violence reduction unit, young people can collaborate, community organisations can collaborate for the common good to reduce violence for society and all have a part to play, but not necessarily be the main driver. Going back to your original point, the police, in effect, just allow the coaches into custody now. They make sure they're safe, vetted. They make sure young people are safe. But really, we we just engineer the, the, the visit now. We engineer the conversation rather than perhaps driving it solely from the Met. It's a collaboration. And and these and, and things like Divert, the Violence Reduction Unit and other projects and programmes, um, there, there's probably been lots of others that have been tried and tested, you know, pursued, showed some success, and then they, they fall away. How are these different from what's existed before? Because I suspect there have been lots of projects or programmes where, you know, whether it's in London or across the country, where they've tried to reduce violence. How are these different at this point in time? Well, from a divert perspective, I actually think one of the unique selling points of divert is it's quite straightforward. It's simple. And over the last seven years now, six years that we've been running divert, I've always tried to keep well, I've always kept it simple. <laughs> Going back to my earlier roots, <laughs> keep it simple, Jack, you know, <laughs> but, but, but the reality is. By keeping it simple and being being sort of resilient in keeping it simple as well, not letting people necessarily dilute the model and break it down. That's what's enabled us to have divert Thames Valley Police, Lancashire Police, because the model is trusted community organisation, build a relationship with a young person in custody, be proactive in delivering an outcome for them, but work on a tailored approach to deliver that for them and be parallel to the criminal justice system. There aren't many ingredients, many more ingredients. And I think I think that's probably what's been picked up over the years is that it is a straightforward model. It's based on good people doing the right thing at the right time. And I've been very I wouldn't say protective, but I've been I've been very mindful not to let that model change because otherwise if it changes that's when I think you get the program breaking down and the emphasis being lost and the momentum and the culture being 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 lost as well. Well what's missing? What what is it that you need that you don't have at the moment? What is it you'd like to do to expand? I mean obviously have it in every custody suite across the country in every police station, but that requires a huge amount of, of, of resources. Although based on what you said, keeping it simple, finding somebody who is trained and has the expertise to go into a police cell and talk to a young person who's caught up in things that they could be diverted away from doesn't feel like it requires much. And that's what bothers me, you, you know, as a, a sort of campaigner myself, that the simple stuff that you're doing doesn't 
feel like it requires a lot of resources. It just requires the will, as you say, the resilience of individuals who are prepared to sit in that cell for an hour or two hours or for a couple of days on and off with a young person trying to find out what it is they need to steer them away from from a future of crime or or violence. I think what's not lacking, what we would need more of, is that cultural change probably within the corporate sectors to say, give these young people a chance. Because remember, they're not criminals, they're not convicts, they're people arrested on suspicion of an offence. And if you're if you're arrested, it doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad person. Does you know what I mean? I've dealt with some really evil people in my career, but the vast majority are people that have made the wrong choice and they've made a mistake. So as a society, do we need to be a bit more alive to the fact that if you've been arrested, do we need to tarnish people with that brush? Because I don't think we do. I think we probably need to be aware that actually some of the people we deal with have done the wrong thing, but they've got the right skills and actually can offer something new and, and different to to uh, a corporate or an enterprise or, or, or a business. I would probably call to multinationals and to corporates across the country to say, let's have a conversation with setting up pathways for these young people, because every single one of us has made mistakes in our lives. As a youngster, if a copper was on my shoulder, I would have got nicked for quite a few things. Nothing serious, but I would have, I, I would have, was I a bad person? No, I wasn't. I just was stupid and I made stupid decisions. And I personally think sometimes that's where we need to sort of change the narrative a little bit. And by giving that support to those young people, businesses will thrive because they have a more representative workforce. They'll also have a workforce where they've got young people that are doing new ideas coming at, you know, I came at it from a different angle because of the influence that had happened to me as a youngster. That's the same influence and that young people can have on businesses by thinking differently about a situation or a problem that needs to be solved. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that if you're a young person and you've stabbed someone, you've got to face the consequences for that, mate, I'm afraid. And that's that's that. But if you're a young person that's starting to sort of make the wrong choices and is, is that lower level sort of element, let's give you an opportunity to move away from this lifestyle. But at the same time, not exclude everyday people as well, because in society, what we find people say to me, Jack, why are you giving all these opportunities to these people? They're missing. You know, normal kids don't get these opportunities. Well, actually, they do. These young people have never had an opportunity presented to them most of the time. Most of them have never been asked, how are you? What do you want to aspire to be? This is what we find in custody. So our job is to connect them to that opportunity so they can see it and they can believe it so they can be it, you know. And that, for me, is what I think is not necessarily lacking in Divert, but what we need more of is that more sort of understanding that actually let's give as many people as a chance and opportunity as possible, even if we can't find, if we can't find them. If we, how can we get into those areas, those social pockets whereby perhaps these young people don't see them aspiring to be something how can we be more proactive in that if that makes sense and 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 these pathways it's interesting because you and I work in this space you as a police officer me as a campaigner as a journalist an ex-prisoner we we see it all the time because we live and breathe it in work out of work you know crime criminality whether we read something you know we're drawn and we're interested people who work in the corporate world 
uh, the enterprise of business is that they don't necessarily see it unless they have some first-hand experience or they read it in a newspaper, see it on the news. Why, why do you think resistance is probably not the right word, but why do you think there is not that there is not more pathways for the disadvantaged or the people that get caught up in in situations where all they need is a little nudge in the right direction and it might be the direction of a corporation. Why do you think, because I'm under the impression that, that businesses, and there are some big ones, Virgin, Marks and Spencers, they all do employ ex-offenders. They do employ people with criminal records. You know, there is big campaigns out there to tick the box and you don't have to declare your, your criminal record at least at some point in the interviewing stage do you find that there is more of a resistance or reluctance as you just said people say why help them when there's lots of you know kids and never been in trouble absolutely i i think like timpsons is another great example as well isn't it i i think there is an appetite there i just think sometimes and i won't necessarily name particular ones but i i just think why aren't the banking sector why aren't coming into the communities and going right like a job you know like the jobs fairs i was talking about earlier right we are x bank we have got recruitment opportunities in these careers we are now in your community doing it if that makes sense right but you can see the challenge there because for somebody to work in a bank there has to be trust if they've been caught up in a police station people are sort of say they're untrustworthy because they've done something bad I, I support what you say. Everybody deserves a second chance. That's the title of my podcast. Everybody deserves to, to have their mistakes in life, whether they have or haven't been arrested, you know, sort of rubbed out because as kids, we, we, we do well, that. We want we we to, sorry, mate, we want to aspirationally get to the point where we don't want anyone in police custody. We don't want people getting nicked. I mean, I know that won't ever happen. But what I'm saying is, to a certain extent, we don't we don't we don't really want divert in, in the custody suite, ultimately, because as a society, we should be doing everything we can to prevent people getting nicked, becoming victims and perpetrators of crime. Do you see what I mean? I'm not I'm not <laughs> not talking divert down whatsoever. But what I'm saying is, as a society, and that's why I think the my ends program is so exciting is, is that it's enabling everyone to have the ability to take the action and have the resources and the, the avenues to help young people. My ends program, what is that? So that's the VRU funded program that the VRU have just created in eight areas of London, whereby they're giving communities and all local organisations funding to take like a place-based approach to reduce violence. So working with people, designing out crime, being really proactive in that small space to say, right, going back to what I was saying, these are the opportunities, these are the employment opportunities local to your area. This is the this is the trauma and the support you need. This is the local activism and community support we've got to help keep our environment and our and our society safe. So so for me, that's probably an ideal example of where you can bolt on all those opportunities uh, in those disadvantaged areas. Say, look, XYZ Enterprise Corporation business are now here every Thursday doing a recruitment open day or recruitment session. This is your to me. That, that's yeah, what I, I do. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. What's your view? You, you, you know, we talk about enterprises, businesses, banking, you know, getting involved in, uh, and opening pathways for people who, who need these kinds of opportunities. What, what's your view around grassroots? Because grassroots organisations, uh, no doubt, who are working with my ends, you know, they've existed for, for generations and donkey years. They come and go. They come up as new names and whatever. And they get criticised because the impact they make is small. It's little. 
But like I say, they've always been in existence, and yet we still have the same problems with violence, with crime. Um, what, what's going wrong there? I mean, or what more can be done, do you think, based on your knowledge and experience? My, my experience is I work with some absolutely amazing grassroots organisations, St Matthew's Project, Uvenus, Dynamics, awesome grassroots organisations that are proactively making a difference to their their, 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 their communities. And there are hundreds more in London doing that. There, I think also, honestly, there's probably hundreds more that probably aren't doing that as well. And I think there's probably an honest conversation to be had way above my level to say, which community, which grassroots organisations are there that we need to fundamentally support and sustain? And which others do we perhaps need to have a conversation with? Because if there's £100,000 up for grabs to help a local area and 65 organizations go for it it starts to become too competitive whereby actually a hundred thousand pounds is 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 only paying for overhead costs or or stuff like that actually i know of grassroots organizations that would take the hundred thousand pounds and deliver something exceptionally meaningful for it and yes i think i think it's but it's so sensitive and so hard I think football foundations do a fantastic job. You know, the the work they do in the communities there. I think it goes back to that collaboration conversation, Raphael. It's about how can we ensure that investment is made in the right way where outcomes are being delivered. So people aren't necessarily, you know, people are delivering um, outcomes. But how can we do it collaboratively whereby we are getting as much sort of bang for our buck but we are ultimately reducing violence and helping to save lives, if that makes sense. Because I think to to police officers, it can be quite confusing around, you know, if I want to set up a diversion program or I want to work with an organisation, in my borough, for instance, there are 300 grassroots organisations. Who who do I work with? Who's good? Who's not good? Who's who's going to deliver outcomes? Who's going to work collaboratively with policing? That's That's a real challenge, I think. Well, yeah, for for me, it's a cold, ruthless decision. You know, as you've said, Jack, you know, if an organisation is proving that they are making a difference and they really do make a difference because they care, you know, it does have to start from a, a position where they've either got lived experiences, they come out the other end and they know what it takes. Although as we get older, we start to lose the slang. We start to lose the ability to communicate. So you are relying on those that are just going through that or just come out the other end. That's my experience anyway. But I'm I'm pretty cold and ruthless in that person is making a difference because they believe in what they're doing. They're not just getting paid to do it. So they're going in there because they know they're getting a check and it doesn't matter whether they get a result. It's because they really know that that kid you talked about being chained to a radiator and not being fed needs help, really does need help. And and once somebody has shared that intimate detail about their life, you've got to do something. And so the right people have got to be in place to do that. What what does the future hold then for, you know, the Violence Reduction Unit, Divert, Mayans? I mean, what do you want to see come out of all the work that you're doing at the moment as a police officer, Jack? I think what, what is required is sustainable support and funding for the VRU to enhance and to keep making that incremental step up to making that more of that impact over over many years so I think I think 
money is a, is a major issue from central government and the Home Office and the government back VRUs to the highest level, which is great. Things like MyEnds and Divert, they need to be led appropriately so that they can be sustained. Their operating models are, are sort of kept focused, their core values and, and what they want to achieve. And then also scanning more opportunities, you know, more more innovations with, with, with diversion. We, we've just started testing the Divert app, which is, is being given to officers to, so when young people come into contact with them, they will be able to refer them directly to an on-call youth worker. And that, again, proactive, straightforward, lean model. So we're just starting to train officers in Lambeth to have a look at that and to test it. But again, it's that emerging, that emerging sort of innovation that, that happens across London all the time. How can we keep sort of supporting those grassroots, not grassroots, those ground level innovations, scale them appropriately and to ensure that it works best for, for, for Londoners and, and, and to reduce violence as well. So I think, I think for me, it's a combination of sustainability with an incremental growth and then allowing new innovations and new approaches to form to, to really make that difference that are going to, that are going to work, you know. And, and that's admirable, but the reason I'm talking to you is because it's champions like yourself that make it possible. You know, you came up with the idea of diverting young people in police custody from aware. And therein for me lies the biggest challenge. When Jack's not about anymore, you're a young man, but when you get old, you're going to retire. Hopefully you'll make all the difference you can during your tenure in the police force. And who knows, you may become what Cressida Dick is now and you can make even more of an impact. But it really does, for me, come down to champions like yourself. You you know, you're a police officer, you're a serving police officer, you know, you do that side of things. Um, But it's the... It's it's your efforts, your will, your desire from before you were a police officer and now you are a police officer in a position of influence to make these changes. Do you think there needs to be more because you need to be grooming someone to take over from you when you can no longer run divert? Because if you're not there champion it, that's when these kinds of organizations, programs, projects fall apart when the champion is no longer there. I, and, and I'm very aware of what you know what they call founder syndrome and things like that. So so my plan is to probably step back from divert in the next couple of years purely because I, I want it to be self-sustaining. But I'm buoyed by the fact that I've got thousands of my colleagues in the Met and across the UK that are believing in this now. And I personally feel that yes, I'm doing it here, I'm doing it there. I feel that we've got a bit of a an upcoming sort of talent coming through the ranks and, and, and also influencing change locally in the police where they understand the benefits of this type of work. So I, I actually feel that the culture change will mean that it will become part of what we do rather than, as you say, driven by key people. And But I'm also very aware of divert particularly has to be something that isn't oh wasn't that something Jack Rowland's got involved in or you know actually no divert is divert this is what we do I don't know who started it I don't know who founded it but this is just what we do and it works and we we're going to carry on doing it do you see what I'm trying to say it's that sort of thing yeah I do it's sustained it works it's just part of what we do that's my aspiration for divert is actually 
step back knowing it's in good hands and it's just part of the legacy of the Met Police and, and working with partners, you know. That's really um, interesting because I think it's part of the process, isn't it? At the moment, it is part of the process and it's expanding and it becomes the norm where officers who arrest people know that when they're you know, in the back of a police car and they're taking the kids crying, it might be a 25-year-old, but they're crying because it's the first time they've been arrested because they had a fight in a nightclub, they're going to end up in the police station. But that officer knows that it's not just taking them to the police station and processing them, but whilst they're in that police station, there will be an opportunity for them to meet potentially somebody who could give them an opportunity. And, 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 and I'm, you know, I'm, no, I'm not naive to realise that not everybody who goes into police custody requires divert. You know, it must be targeted towards certain individuals or groups who, who probably need it more than the drunken guy who's just got pissed and ended up getting into a row, called an officer a name and then spends the night in a police station. He probably doesn't need it. He may do because he may be an alcoholic. I, I don't know. Um, but it, look, I mean, it's it's a brilliant divert in particular. I think. I mean, reducing violence in London is obviously a challenge in itself, and will always be a challenge. But I do like the idea that as the generations move forward and you get new police officers in thinking in different ways, it brings about, uh, let's say, a, a level of trust from communities and police forces where they can partner and work together and it's not always going to be about conflict. What's your final word, Jack? What's your final message, especially for those that are listening who are parents, who are young people? And I do have a lot of young listeners between the age of 18 and 30 who may be able to get involved in some way, want to get involved. I mean, can people get involved or is this purely for for organisations? No, no. I mean, for me, I personally feel that to a certain extent, if we're all diver agents, you know, what I mean by that is if, if peers, family and friends and whoever are, are alive to you're going down the wrong route and I need to try and connect you to an opportunity, then ev- anyone can do that for free. The shields mean any anyone can proactively help their friend help their relative help anyone out that's in need in order to do that and Londoners can do that and people living in the UK can do that you can do it I can do it now to shield to mean so I think for me what's really important is research local grassroots organizations that are delivering some great work connect to businesses colleges and other organisations that can offer those opportunities. And if you need to walk that young person to that opportunity and put them right in front of that, that, that opportunity, then so be it. But you can do that. You can use your own influence as a peer, as a friend, as a family member to, to help with that. And I think that's separate completely to divert to, you know, that's what we can do as a society, I think. And it also goes down to things like crime stoppers. Thing, you just know to me, making making calls where if you see something, you know, if you feel you're not sure about something, if it's someone that's in danger, you know, someone that's getting led down the wrong path is being groomed, you know, you've got fearless.org, you've got crime stoppers, you know, you've got the Met Police, you've got the ability to call police if you're unsure and you're you're concerned for someone. And I think having that impact across the country is is probably my message is is anyone can be that that diversionary champion. 
Why do you believe in giving people a second chance? Because I've seen from a personal point of view, you know, within my childhood and, and my family dynamic, and I've seen it as a police officer, I have seen two things. I've seen someone transform when they've been given an opportunity, and I've seen someone not transform and really muck their lives up when they haven't been. And I think that there's a separation between someone making a bad choice and someone doing something really bad. I think someone that makes a bad choice, I do think generally does need a second chance, does need that nudge to do something different. And I'm a big advocate of it because I feel that if we then shy away from that and we just let people keep making bad choices, keep keep doing the wrong thing, then it just gets worse. It doesn't just get worse for them. It gets worse for their family, their friends, their society. And then it has got a bigger chance of repeating itself later in life. This year to mean as in children, their family becomes chaotic. Everything starts breaking down. Whereas if you give someone a second chance, you then give them that new pedestal to do something that settles all that down and, 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 and negates that and prevents it. And I think it's core of, of what we should be doing in society in general. I think we should be taking a bit more of an understanding approach around actually perhaps the bigger picture here is as you've been growing up, you haven't had those people in your life to perhaps guide you in the right direction. And actually by doing that now means that you can now see the opportunities in front of you in life to, to get on, live healthy and never come into contact with, with the police in a negative way, if that makes sense, you know. At the beginning of this conversation, you, you told me that the reason you, you were diverted, if you like, towards becoming a police officer is because you wanted to make a difference. You wanted to help people. You wanted to be there uh, uh, between perpetrator and victim. Uh, have you achieved that? Do you think, have you fulfilled that desire that you started off? And, and what is your final question from me? What is your ambition? Kind of the head, the Met Police, where do you want to take your career? I think personally, I want less dead people on the streets of London. I want less victims of, of murder. That's what I ultimately want in in society and, and as a police officer. Let people not being murdered, perpetrators not murdering, if that makes sense. And for me, that's that's what I aspire. That's my ambition in London and in, in policing. But at the same time, personally, I'm happy to just keep going with the flow. And I don't mean that in a in a reckless way. I want to make an impact. I want to make a difference to, to London. I want to make a difference to policing. And I want to make a difference to, to the people that live, live in, in this city. And wherever I go in the Met, as long as I keep wanting to do that and doing that, then I'll be happy. I've, I've got no major aspirations to be a particular rank or a particular role i just have an overall mission of that's what i want to do but also at the same time still be a dad still be a friend still be a husband do you, do you see what i mean still still keeping that balance so that's my ambition mate is to keep it balanced but keep making the impact keep making that difference as long as i can jack rollins thanks very much for coming on my podcast and, and sharing the work that you're doing uh, and your personal story of becoming a police officer thanks for your time Thanks, Raphael. Cheers. Nice to meet you too.
Over the next few weeks, I'll be speaking to others involved in the Divert project to find out more about its impact on reducing reoffending. I believe it can be a real game changer for those who take a wrong turn in life. These kinds of programs are also crucial to reducing the chances of a young person becoming a victim or perpetrator of further violence. As Jack said, this isn't a soft option. This is about young adults taking responsibility and making better choices to change their life. For more information about the work of Divert and the Violence Reduction Unit, follow the links in the description about this episode. Thanks for listening to this episode and please share and follow us on social media. It'd be great if you could rate and review on the site where you listen to this podcast. If you want to support or advertise on the show, please get in touch. If you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a direct message via LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by Jabo Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest booker is Tegan Parsons. And me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.